Welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners who will introduce themselves. And today's icebreaker question was inspired by something I found in my Twitter feed, a mini PC that costs about $1,700. It's supposed to self-destruct if it's ever tampered with. And I felt like there is an element of mocking in the article of the price of the Uh, capabilities and the need for it. And I wanted you guys to play devil's advocate. What would be the use case for an individual or a company uh, for needing that device? This is Mike Buckby. I think this thing is awesome. Legitimately think it's awesome. And I, I can see so many uses for it. And a lot of this is because there's a sort of truism with security that physical security trumps everything. That if you, you know, can get alone with a computer in a dark alley, you can take advantage of it. And this puts in a lot of things that would stop that. And I could see this being used in lots and lots of scenarios where it's convenient to have a computer that's located in a place, but that's not physically secure. So you can imagine lots of retail establishments, lots of places like parking garages where, you know, they have automated systems, lots and lots of places where even within an organization, there's something that malicious people could get into and do bad things with. So I, I think it's a, a clever idea. And beyond just, I think people sort of focused on like, oh, it self-destructs like something from Mission Impossible. But even setting that aside, there's a number of other, I think, just very useful things with it, like a key fob that uh, automatically locks it when you wander away from the computer. So uh, I think it's a good mix of decent security measures to try to fix a really big issue that a lot of places have. Dang, Mike, you stole my Mission Impossible joke. (laughs) So I I guess I have nothing really to add. But I, I agree, Mike, just to set this off on the wrong foot with everything you just said. I thought there's actually some really cool applications here. My mind first went to a Mission Impossible joke, and second, it went to kind of ultra-secure facilities like a SCIF that you'd have in a government facility for processing um, sensitive data. The other half of that is I just thought how perfect of a machine it would be for doing really terrible things. If uh, if you're worried about the FBI kicking in your door and figuring out what nefarious deeds you're up to, um, having it destruct if they try and mess with it or investigate it uh, seems like something the bad guys would really love too. So both sides of the coin depending on on which hat you're wearing, I guess. This is Mike Thompson, and once again, I agree with what everyone said. There's, I think there's plenty of good use cases for this computer, and honestly, the price isn't that bad. And Cindy made some allusions to them kind of poking fun at the cost, but considering all the features it has, I, I don't think it's an unreasonable ask. What I thought of was kind of some of these private CIA, so to speak, these private investigative firms that do like corporate espionage and, and potentially illegal stuff, but make a lot of money doing it and have certainly troves of, of private information. So uh, for people like them that, that may have some enemies, <laughs> it'd probably be useful to have, you know, ultimate protection of that data. And, and like uh, Mike Buckby said, the, the physical security is can't be uh, overlooked. See, I do just, just so we don't get too chummy and agree with each other, I want to push back on the notion that this is just for like... Because I think it's easy to think of this almost in terms of like a movie device. Like, oh, it's this highly secure stuff where I think it's actually really useful is probably for what I consider more like dumb stuff. But like every restaurant you go into, every chain restaurant, they now have digital signage and those are all controlled by a computer. Every roadside, you know, sign has a computer with a keyboard inside that metal box on the side that they type in to put messages up. 
lots and lots of places where, you know, it'd be very easy to, you know, get physical access to the, to the computer and do something bad with as a potential first step to getting onto a network or getting more information about things. And in those cases where, you know, it's, it's a rounding error, the price of this thing compared to the rest of the, the components that it's with. So I think it's really neat. And I think it's a, a positive step in the right direction. I'd love to see other just commodity, you know, motherboards and devices have these same sort of features built in. Do you know if it says when it self-destructs, you know, like Mission Impossible, this device will self-destruct in five <laughs> seconds? That yeah, would a be... A little puff of smoke and everything. Yeah, that would be so cool. Yeah, little known fact, Mission Impossible started the vaping trend, like way before everyone else, all the, everything was vaping. So. <laughs> well, that's when you could smoke on airplanes and everything else, too. So, you know. it, was, it was a different time. So. <laughs> As always, our housekeeping announcement is if you're a regular listener and enjoy our show, please go to iTunes to rate and review the Inside Out Security Show, and we'll put you in the running for a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com slash review. And so for today's show... I started out with the $1,700 self-destructing PC, and it caught my eye because people were making fun of the price, but it reminded me of budgets. And I think it's also budget season time where organizations are already planning for 2018. And it's always a challenge to get budget for the IT and security department and it reminds me of this Reddit thread where a volunteer at a food bank who was handed the IT responsibilities to set up a basic environment. He says he's setting up two Windows 10 PCs and it's hosted on Exure. And he said that Exure gives $5,000 worth of IT stuff to nonprofits, which is good to know. And he can't spend that much money on IT when it's supposed to go to food packages for the poor. And he's new to this sysadmin role. And whether you're a nonprofit, small startup, or a large organization, you're going to be asked to stretch every dollar. And what advice do you have for individuals who are faced with this challenge, which is pretty much everyone? My advice is, is to keep things as simple as you can. Costs can run away very quickly, and especially if you have security in mind. So a, a lot of the advice in this, this Reddit thread is leverage Azure, leverage Office 65 where possible. You know, this, this guy was kind of talking about setting up domain controllers and stuff and you know, a larger environment with the idea of future growth. I'd say wait to cross that bridge until you really need to. If, if money is tight, focus on what you can control, what you can easily maintain and keep secure. The more variables you introduce to that environment, that's more and more points of attack, more and more things you can not patch. So if you can leverage you know, any managed services from any provider, whether that be Microsoft or someone else, um, and it's budget conscious, I think that that's the move. Eliminate you know, the variables on your end that can... Especially for people who are not very technical, you know, this guy's kind of just forced into an IT role because he's the youngest person at this company, which was actually how I got into IT once upon a time. So um, I know what it's like to be in that position and you don't want to get in over your head or else uh, things can go really wrong. Man, we're just really agreeing uh, today. This is going to make for a terrible podcast. But um, I think, uh, Mike, you're entirely right there, too. The nice thing is, despite jokes from the 90s, Microsoft actually does offer quite uh, a nice complement of security tools built into some of their platforms, and a lot of these vendors do. They realize that 
for people to adopt these cloud technologies, it needed to be simple and it needed to be secure. So there's a lot of benefit to leveraging what they offer out of the box and not getting too deep. The other portion is prioritizing what you really need versus risk. As you mentioned, Mike, I, f I feel like there's a lot of risk setting up your own domain controller, especially if you've not done it before. And then you have to realize what's the benefit versus using some of Microsoft offerings built right in to it. Same with, you know, setting up an email system or something like that. There's a lot of great uh, off-the-shelf products that do this for you that are managed professionally, have security um, and monitoring built in. And as you grow, uh, a lot of them do allow you to extend that as well, even to on-premise if, um, if that's somewhere you need to go. I, I took this a slightly different way, which is that this person hasn't learned that the most expensive part of any uh, technical solution is the people that administer it which is a weird thing to kind of think about because you think, oh, this stuff is so expensive. But really, it's it's a tiny, tiny piece of how much it costs for someone to actually set up and manage all these things. And I, uh, though it pains me, I agree with what everyone else has said so far. I, I, But to me, that's the bigger thing that comes through is there's just this weird sense of like, oh, paying for a thing versus paying for someone's time and how that's counted very differently. So it's going to be that person's second job and he doesn't even know it. Right. And I, it's, we talk a lot about security risks of things. And you know, what this really brought to mind to me was that there is a security risk to over-engineering solutions um, just because it does. It opens up all this extra surface area of things that can be attacked and things that can be and just things you have to deal with. And that, you know, a lot of times there's there's other reasons that's bad, like you don't want to spend money unnecessarily. You don't want to buy solutions that you don't actually have problems for, but that, that is actually worse than that, that it can actually make things worse for you by, you know, making you less secure. Another aspect of budgets I never really thought about until I listened to a panel workshop hosted by the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And one of the panelists said that we create these connected cars without thinking about encryption and authentication. And now that we want to add security to it later, it makes things more expensive. And then another said that the lifespan of a car is longer than a regular IoT device. Its lifespan of a car is going to be 11 years. And the challenge is to secure it over time and update it. And my question is, if you're tasked with managing this dynamic security risk, what are some immediate challenges a car company would face when it comes to budgets, security, and risk? I mean, the first thing that, that comes to my mind is, you know, how does a car stay connected or how can you make sure that, you know, you have an awareness of your network cars that are active like what's your active car base i guess for any manufacturer which ones are still on the road which ones are used do you know who owns them still have they been sold do you, like to what extent do they really have control over their you know if, if we're looking at all these cars as a network um do they know like what are the the active devices so to speak in this network and how can you push out updates you know someone's driving in a, a rural area where i can't even get cell phone service much less like a, a proper internet connection you know how do those cars get firmware updates you know there, there's there's logistical challenges just in terms of maintaining that network <laughs> we, we've talked in the past about like android fragmentation and how like all these different device manufacturers leverage android but different flavors of it they have their own proprietary versions and you know certain devices ultimately can't get the latest security updates i can only imagine that the same scenario is going to apply for cars you know tenfold it's just going to be impossible to manage everything and keep a unified front in terms of security i think a great lesson 
for that is especially dealing with cars. Look at the Takata airbag fiasco that we've been dealing with for how many years at this point. I know on one of my cars, I just finally, after more than two years of having a notification that it had a faulty airbag, they finally had them in stock to replace it. Within a week that I get that notice, I got another notice saying that, oh, the other airbag in the car was faulty as well. So it may be two or more years until that even happens. I feel like the the patching and the, and the progress on this is going to be just as slow for connected cars as it is in the physical world. Even though we have technology to kind of push this out and streamline it a little bit, I think it's going to be just as challenging to notify people that there's a security risk with their car that's not physical in nature. Um, I think it's maybe hard sometimes for people to wrap around their head around the fact that it's it's a physical component of the car, the actual um, piece of machinery, but it's like having a computer there as well too. Uh, that's it's hard for people, even uh, sometimes myself, just to kind of think about that. This is you know an IoT device with wheels. I mean, we saw that huge Volkswagen recall in the past couple of years with the you know, they were cheating. I mean, this was computer based, not that the computer was really why it had to be recalled, but you know they were cheating emissions tests. Essentially, they knew when a testing device had been hooked up and were faking the results of the. I guess it was turbo diesel engines or something along those lines, but uh, a massive recall. So are we going to have to see a massive vehicle recall across the board because there's some security flaw that can't be patched via traditional methods and they just have to say, well, we, we got to take all these devices off the road because there's a security hole so big, you know, that we can't issue an over the air patch for it, you know? So like, you know, take every 2020 Toyota Celica off the road because of a security hole, which is something that could, that could happen. You know, people got to, are going to lose their vehicle because it's putting other consumers at risk. You've been having it on the road. I'm not so sure. I think what we're going to see is something that looks a lot more like cell phones, that I think in general that uh, cars and self-driving cars are moving towards something that's a lot more, less ownership and more, you know, like you buy into a fleet or you buy into something else, and that and that it's going to be handled um, because the risks are so grave by the companies in a very different way. Like in the same way that you know, it's now standard, you know, for your iPhone, for your Android to get over the air updates and that they get, you know, patches, that it's mandated. You don't really have a choice about it in a lot of cases. I think we're going to see the same thing happen in a really aggressive fashion with cars. And we joke about Tesla, but Tesla does that now. Tesla has over the air updates to all of their, you know, the operating system that runs on the cars. And it you know pushes out new features, fixes bugs, security issues, all sorts of things. And to me, that's really what the model looks like going forward, that it's much less like I need to be directly concerned and involved with this. Uh, I'll disagree with you and, and go back to, uh, to other Mike's point, is that we see that this model is already falling apart, especially in the cell phone world, it, more so with Android than anything else, because there's so much fragmentation and different implementations in the market. You know, a lot of devices... Samsung is notorious for this. They make you know beautiful devices, but they only support them for you know less than a year with uh, with updates, and then you're kind of on your own um, if you're ever going to get the new version of Android or if you're going to get the monthly security patches. So I, I think there's a lot of danger in in just relying on them to take care of this. Now, Mike, if you're saying that we're going to have a like a software as a service type of model for cars where we don't have private ownership and we just kind of rent them and it's on demand, I can see that working. Um, if that's where you're going with that as well. Well, I, there's neither, no one's going to snap their fingers and it's going to be that scenario. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that comes in between that. Just like right now, people take a lot of different modes of transportation depending upon what they have to do. So uh, I think it's going to be all over the place. But 
to, to my mind, in general, most security things are moving towards uh, a system of there, there needs to be some sort of constant method of updating, constant method of evaluating security uh, issues, clear reporting of security issues, and, and all of that takes place in, in one tight ecosystem that it's much less something where, oh, I'm going to get the aftermarket computer and put in and then, you know. I look at the future of this as like Tesla, where it's a closed environment. They're very strict about locking it down. You know, they're very good about putting out updates and that it's less it's less like a PC. So something that came up in that FTC panel that I hadn't really thought about was the kind of business side of this where and they, they used a real life example that's already out there, which is apparently people who do car payment loans to low income individuals will install a device that essentially they can disable the ignition. So if someone hasn't paid their, their car payment, they can just disable the car remotely so they can no longer turn it on. So if we're <laughs> that that had never really crossed my mind before, but uh, you know, that's already implemented. That's already out there. And we're already talking about, I wanna say a shady business, but certainly one that is maybe um, dealing in the margins and with lower budgets than a, like a, a you know a big technology player is so who's to say that technology couldn't already be hijacked and you could remotely disable vehicles so i i think that there there's probably regulation that will come down the line there will be smart solutions to these problems but there's also going to be dumb solutions to these problems that are going to introduce <laughs> <laughs> problems that you know the best minds are trying to address but cheap shallow wallets are going to ignore Let's take a budget business and security interlude. Uh, Mike Thompson, you've been alluding to this, and it's such a good segue about ethics and, and morals. And there was a question from an attendee that asked if companies feel too much pressure and what if they end up just creating false cybersecurity data and the response by one of the panelists said that creating false cybersecurity data isn't going to enhance a user's experience. And I think his response made total sense. But I also think that he was someone that spends his time thinking a lot about how cybersecurity and ethics mingle. And there have been talks about making IT people take philosophy classes so that when you're creating apps and software tech devices, they're more grounded in answering values-based questions. And what's an argument for moving forward with this approach as well as drawbacks? I mean, a philosophy class isn't going to stop you from a coding bug. <laughs> like, it's nice to have that mindset when you're creating something that, you know, you, you're, you're taking into account the, the human component. But I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's a nice place to come from, but maybe a little idealistic in terms of its, its real-world effects. So, I mean, in just looking at some examples we have now, I'm sure everybody, you know, at the TSA, for example, their their mission is to to protect us or try and protect us. But that doesn't stop them from basically having a largely security theater approach. So their heart is in the right place, but the implementation and the execution are, you can't explain away, you know, a 90% or more failure rate in detecting things because you have good intentions. And I think that's a, kind of a, a real-world example. I wanted to apply that, though, to Google's Project Zero, and they find and publish exploits in another company's software products. And the project, it does great work, and the Internet's 
benefited enormously from these efforts. And the drawback people have said is that as long as it's embedded inside Google, it has to deal with accusations that it targets Google's competitors. And what are your thoughts about the tension between security teams and how to work with the Project Zero people if you ever have to work with them? This is interesting because, you know, the accusation that they be targeting competitors, like if they find a valid flaw, as consumers, do we care that Google was targeting a competitor? First of all, I don't really think they're doing that. But even if they are, if they find something valid, then so be it. They, it deserves to be found, whether it's coming from Google or if it's whether it's coming from a government agency. And certainly Google and companies of their size have the budget and resources to, to create these type of, uh, you know, they call it kind of this elite uh, SWAT team for technology. So they have the, the resources and the talent and the money to to make the world safer for everybody else. I'm, I'm okay with it. And if someone wants to have a similar team that can specifically target Google, that's great as well. But I don't have any qualms with that being an internal team at Google personally. This is kind of a good example of free market security in practice. You know, the, the ethics to not discount that if they are targeting uh, the competitors is not great. In some ways, the ends justify the means. And if this spurs other people to have, again, their own security teams targeting Google or whoever, that's a moral gray area and something different, but the consumers will ultimately benefit from that uh, increased competition in the market to drive to a more secure state. So, you know, without getting into the, the ethics of it, um, I think that we're going to benefit more from that type of intense competition or even um, from the fear in some ways that it generates. People don't want to get on Project Zero's radar and get called out in public. I mean, fear and shaming are, are not good, but the result sometimes is beneficial for, for more people. And the example used in this article of, of the Cloudflare leak is, I mean, so massive. I mean, certainly there's no argument that could be made. I don't think that the vast, huge portion of the internet didn't benefit greatly from this, this uh, vulnerability being discovered. So I'm sure they can ride the coattails of that discovery for a long time in terms of public goodwill. Do you think it was responsibly disclosed? That's a good question. I was exactly thinking that because whose responsibility is it to publish it? Because it's kind of like you're a parent and with a child and you're outside. And how do you parent your child? Like, do you shame them publicly or then or do you talk to the kid at home privately? Maybe that's not a good example, but like it's about respect, I feel. Well, that that takes a different angle to this, and I think gets to a lot of this, which is talk about Google Project Zero is like, oh, it's brash, and they don't care, and they're like messing this stuff up. Like, is that a stylistic thing, or is there a purpose to it? And this has definitely been the case historically, that there have been software companies that don't want to actually fix their software, that they don't think it's an issue, that they don't think there's something there, and that they want to either just say it's not an issue and sweep it under the rug, or not change their practices. And because of their prominence, they're able to have this, you know, really outsized PR effect. And if you want to argue that, like, oh, the Cloudflare thing, the whole cloud bleed incident, a lot of it, I feel, was theoretical, only in the sense, like, yes, definitely this stuff happened. But in the scope of it, it was a very small number of websites. And even that small number of websites with leaked data, it seemed like there wasn't actually a, a case where they found like, oh, this is a horrible thing in it. Definitely was a, a real issue. Definitely they needed to fix it. Definitely it was a bug. But I don't quite know how to 
to put it in that in that context. What's going on in Mike's corner? You have a tool. Uh, the tool is called Honey Lambda, and it's a simple serverless application designed to create and monitor URLs. So what you do is throughout your emails, throughout maybe orphan spots on your website, you go in and you put these uh, honeypot URLs. And if they're scraped, you know that something malicious is trying to get into them. And it runs on top of uh, Amazon's API gateway and Amazon's Lambda function as a service. So it's very inexpensive to run and it's pretty much preset up. Like you can almost just deploy it right from the, the Git repo. But it's really neat for all of that to then give you this great way to sort of monitor for issues that you know if someone is accessing this URL that's inside your email that someone malicious has scanned it and has found this. So really neat for all that and uh, was just released. So Honey Lambda. Thanks to Mike Buffy, Killian Engler, Mike Thompson, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, Cindy. Bye, Cindy.